0: Hello, everyone. This is Volts for April 21st, 2023, the wonky but incredibly important changes Biden just made to regulatory policy. I'm your host, David Roberts. When President Biden first took office, his administration released a series of day one executive actions. Among them was reforming the way federal regulations are developed and evaluated. This is not exactly something the public was clamoring for or even aware of, but it is foundational to the administration's ability to achieve its other goals. The agency in charge of reviewing proposed federal regulations is called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA, which sits inside the Office of Management and Budget. It is a fairly obscure corner of the federal bureaucracy that doesn't come in for much public scrutiny, but as the gateway through which all federal regulations must pass, it is immensely powerful in shaping the space of possibilities for any administration. A few weeks ago, OIRA answered Biden's call by issuing updated versions of two crucial documents, Circular A4 and Circular A94. The former contains guidance for agencies on how OIRA will evaluate proposed regulations. The latter contains guidance for how it will evaluate proposed public investments. These guidance documents have not been updated in over 20 years, so this development is long overdue. The new circulars contain some fairly technical updates to the way OIRA does cost-benefit analysis and the goals toward which it deploys cost-benefit analysis but they are incredibly important evidence of a generational philosophical shift. To unpack these changes, I talked with Sabil Rahman of Brooklyn Law School, who served as acting administrator of OIRA last year, while its current leader was being confirmed by the Senate. Rahman was intimately involved in designing the updated guidance, so I was eager to talk to him about the new approach, how it was developed, how it reflects Biden's priorities, and what it means for the future of climate and other regulations. I know this sounds wonky, but I promise it is worth your time. You will come out of it excited about cost-benefit analysis. With no further ado, Sabil Rahman, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. I'm so excited to, t- to talk about this. It is wonky, but it is awesome. So yes, <laughs> it's wonky great. and awesome. I've had sort of a side obsession with these issues for a long, long time, and this is really a, a perfect opportunity to jump into them. But before, you know, before we jump into too many wonky details, I want to do some scene setting just so people know, kind of have a, have a sense of what we're talking about in general. So, you know, when Biden came in, He issued this sort of um, list of day one, what they call day one priorities. And one of those was to update regulatory policy, basically, how regulations get assessed and uh, crafted. You know, this is not something I think the public (laughs) is beating down (laughs) the door to (laughs) demanding this. This is clearly, you know, this is something that has a behind-the-scenes air about it. But it's also clearly political priority. So maybe just to start with, let's just talk about what is the Office of Management and Budget, OMB? What is OIRA, which is the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs? Yep, absolutely. Ah, nice first try. There we go. Uh, and what what OIRA is within it and why what they do seems to have such a, you know, such political um, presence. In the administration, that it that it made its way to the top of this day one priority list, just to sort of set the scene. Yeah,
1: absolutely. No, that's great, and and thanks so much, David. And um, you're exactly right. This is this is very much um, a kind of behind the scenes type of sets of issues, but really, really important for all the day to day stuff, right? That uh, government needs to do, and and especially in this moment, right? when We're thinking about the climate crisis, or we're thinking about trying to address systemic inequality. So the fact that this was part of the day one suite of actions from the president is I think pretty indicative. So there was the headline stuff, you know, the new climate regulations, the equity executive order responding to COVID, right? There's all of that headline stuff. And then this uh, regulatory review piece was also there because that's actually part of the back end to make all those other policies work. So, you know, we're used to thinking about, oh, the president comes in, president can make all kinds of sweeping policy uh, decisions or kind of really important policy decisions. The day-to-day of how that happens involves the federal agencies and the agencies they can you know, make enforcement actions, they can spend money, or they can write rules. And it's that rule writing part that goes through the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And so mm-hmm. this office that you talked about, you know, OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, you know, builds the the president's budget every year. They handle the the budget side, but they also do a lot of really, really important work. In terms of management. So how do agencies manage their personnel, operate strategically, have the highest impact for the resources they have? And then there's OIRA, which is the regulatory part, sort of the third pillar of OMB. OIRA works with the agencies, will review, uh, under executive order going back to Clinton era and a practice actually dating even further behind that, OIRA will review major federal regulations uh, in part for the policy, in part for legal issues, but also, most importantly, to make sure they're consistent with the president's vision. And that mm-hmm. makes it a really important nexus for all of this stuff, which is also partly why it can come in the crosshairs at times.
0: Right. And and a question about that, OIRA, what sort of police powers does it have? Like if, OIRA, like if you send a, you know, if an agency develops a regulation, sends it to OIRA for review and OIRA finds a problem, can OIRA just say, nope, you got to go back and try again? Or is it suggestions? What's the kind of power? What power does it have?
1: Right. So it's quite a powerful office. Uh, and I should say, you know, I've obviously spent the first two years of the Biden administration in OIRA and, and was the acting head of, uh, of the office until the confirmed administrator came in uh, a few months ago. But um, the powers under the original Clinton executive order, which continues you know, to be in effect to this day, Uh, really makes OIRA the kind of last stop in the policy-making approval process. So Mm -hmm. uh, agencies have to get OIRA clearance for uh, significant regulations. Now, to get OIRA clearance, that's not just, you know, what does OIRA think? um, What does that office think? Mm -hmm. The OIRA clearance process is really a kind of governmental peer review. So the idea is that through OIRA, OIRA will get sister agencies, other parts of the West Wing, kind of anyone who might have, you know, a point of view on the policy at hand, to make sure everyone's on the same page, right? And it's really that coordination that's the biggest kind of uh, stick in that, you know, if someone's got a problem, you know, if people aren't on the same page, the rule's not going to go forward until there's at least an understanding about, okay, here's what it does, here's what it doesn't do, everyone's
0: comfortable with this. Right. So it's sort of like the last stop a regulation goes to before going out to the public and and consequently has enormous gatekeeping significance, even though it's completely outside of, more or less outside of uh, public view, unless, you know, except for a few, a small handful of nerds paying close attention to these things. And just to mention, you mentioned this in passing, but just to clarify to um, listeners, you were the acting administrator of OIRA for the first two years of Biden's term while the current administrator was going through the process of getting confirmed. So these changes we're going to talk about, you were central in shepherding them through and and shaping them where you're not.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say there there was um, an acting administrator uh, in the first year and I came in as the number two and then Uh, took over in the second year. Uh, But this was very much uh, a big part of our day to day and a big part of the important work, because going back to your first question, you can think about the individual regulations that are important, you know, trying to move good policy on, you know, labor issues or on COVID or on equity or on climate but they all have to work through this existing regulatory review process. And so, if we don't update that, right? this process has been in place for decades, then you're you know you're trying to shoehorn a, a kind of cutting edge policy through very old procedures, right? Yeah, and it, yeah. and you know it's got to be updated. so so this was a, a big part of the work for sure. yeah.
0: And a final note on on staffing the the administrator in question who was just confirmed is Richard Revez, uh, Richard Revez. Who is a law professor at NYU, one time dean of the NYU Law School, and a long time heavyweight academic expert in exactly this stuff cost benefit analysis, et cetera, et cetera. So, this is, you know, which I just think is sort of an indication, you know, you watch staffing to see what administrations care about. This is, to me, appointing him indicates that Biden is taking this very seriously.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, and and you know, Ricky's fantastic. You know, he's he's uh, his leadership has already been uh, tremendous in his first couple months. Uh, but exactly right, you know, he's he's certainly an expert in cost benefit analysis in the regulatory state. He's a uh, he's done a lot of work on climate and energy. A lot of his academic work coming in was also about how to make sure that distributional questions don't get lost in mm-hmm. conventional analysis. And if and when you look at the draft, you know, um, you'll see a lot of those sensibilities woven through. Now, should we say, you know, that that's not just Ricky, right? The president in his day one memo calls out specifically climate, equity, distribution, right. future generations, human dignity, all these things that we want good policy to be able to speak to. The charge was to go look at the review process and, and make sure that those values don't get squeezed out, don't get lost, that they're right. incorporated in a way that's rigorous and, you know, evidence-based
0: and all of that kind of stuff. Right. One more background kind of philosophical note uh, just to sort of set the table here also is debates about cost benefit analysis go way back. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and are are vigorous and ongoing and there is a school of thought that says the process is sort of inherently conservative, inherently against pro social, you know, long-term action and it should be scrapped in favor of something else. And then there's this other sort of school of thought, which I think Ricky Reves is is a good example of, which says, no, it is possible to sort of rethink and reimagine cost-benefit analysis in a way that serves pro-social, you know, dare I even say progressive ends. And this is what we're looking at here is that school of thought, you know showing what it can do like this is this is overall what we're seeing here is an effort to make cost benefit analysis more let's say pro social and and far seeing and less of the sort of conservative process that it has traditionally been is that is that fair
1: I think that's fair and and you know I, I would say it's an effort to make the cost benefit or really the impact analysis because it's not just costs and benefits right there's other stuff that don't fit into those buckets so it's really about a more holistic impact analysis and to make that sort of as strong and robust and cutting edge as it can be and this was part of the president's uh, day 1 charge as well because if you look at that original memo that memo sort of reaffirmed the president's commitment to the enterprise of impact analysis mm-hmm. to the the conventional sort of Role that OIRA plays, but set this task that the role needs to be exercised in this more modern, cutting-edge way, and that's why for me, you know, reading it in context of the other sort of substantive day one commitments was really important because that's the substance that the the process you know has to be in sync with, right? right, if we, right. You know, because we we got big things that we're trying to do on climate, <laughs> on equity, right. on you know all the crises that were swirling at that time. So no, I think you're exactly right. You know, about the broader philosophical debate. You know, I should say. I mean, this is so important because my own entree into this, I'm a political theorist by training. I spent before the administration, I was uh, president of racial equity advocacy organization, Demos, where we did a lot of work on these kinds of issues. And it's a very real debate that I imagine will continue and should continue about what is the right way to review and analyze uh, public policy. But what I, I think is true sort of regardless is that we need something much more multifaceted, holistic, flexible than what we had before, even under previous democratic administrations.
0: Yeah, yeah. What we've got now clearly doesn't work. So let's talk about then um, specifically what's happening. So there are two documents, guidances being updated here. The first one is called Circular A4, (laughs) which is basically guidance on how ORIRA assesses regulations. And then there's Circular A94, which has to do with how ORIRA assesses public investment. And my understanding is that the issues and updates in A94 regarding public investment more or less track what's going on in A4. So I'm going to mostly focus on A4. We can touch on, you know, if you have specific things to say about A94 later, we can get back to it. But I think... If we cover A4, we'll more or less be be hitting the big issues in A ninety four too. So A four is is a guidance for what Orira is doing when it does this regulatory review. So maybe let's just start with like what is this circular A four? <laughs> where where did it come from and how and how long has the sort of existing guidance been around? Like who who wrote the one we're using now? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So uh there's a whole world of government documents that is not beyond the executive orders and we're entering into it now. So so circular A4 has never been updated. It was first issued in 2003 huh. uh during the Bush years and has stayed in place since then. So that that right off the bat I think tells you a lot, right? Yeah. About uh just kind of how important this this update is the fact that it's a circular, that's really guidance, not just for OMB and OIRA, but it's meant to be guidance for the agencies. Mm. So the idea is that the agencies are using it as their sort of touchstone of here's here's what we should be striving towards. This is also the kind of stuff that OIRA, when your rule comes in to OIRA for final review, this is the stuff that OIRA is going to kick the tires on. And so it, it really kind of sets up those conversations. The other thing that's really important to know that it's a technical document. Uh, I mean, it, it's technical if you read it. It's, you know, it's no. technical to read, but even its status is as a technical document, less as a political document, because it actually goes through, and the version that's released now is about to go through public comment and peer review. And mm. so the idea is that it's supposed to represent a sort of expert state of the field right. that is that is not meant to be, you know, kind of changing every time, you know, the White House changes hands. It's really right. meant to be a, this is what, you know, public policy and social science, you know, across the board, people agree that this is a kind of best practice, right? Got it. Um, and so the ambition here is to update that old document, but really update it in a way that has that seal of approval from, you know, the evidence and the, the research and the, and, and the field. Yeah. So that it can have some lasting lasting staying power.
0: Right. So this is not something that was ever intended to be sort of updated administration to administration. It's supposed to be sort of uh, a stable guiding document over over time. But maybe like... (laughs) Having it be twenty years old is maybe a little bit uh, longer. Between twenty years updates. is
1: probably too long, and, <laughs> and
0: we'll, I'm sure we'll get into the weeds of you know you can d- definitely see
1: the drift you know that <laughs> yes. has happened right as the world has moved on in the last twenty years. Yeah. yeah.
0: So um, uh, uh, several changes to A4 um, substantive changes that I want to get into, but one just sort of um, kind of technical change right off the top that I that I kind of thought was interesting is um, because I've, I've discussed it on volts before is the what triggers OIRA review, yep. right? And, and so currently the threshold was if the regulation has $100 million or more of impact, that triggers full OIRA review, which is a pretty exhaustive process. Like yeah. it's it's, it's time-consuming and staff-consuming, and that threshold has been raised to $200 million, as far as I can tell, just to sort of reflect inflation, et cetera. But yeah. the, the effect will be – Fewer regulate like, like the number of regulations that needed OIR review is sort of piling up and getting unwieldy, and you know the, you have staffing shortages. So among other things, this will free up OIRA staff a little bit to focus a little bit more on the truly significant regulations. And I always like you know administrative capacity is one of my is one of my passions. So this oh, is absolutely. sort of this is sort of a way of freeing up some administrative capacities.
1: That's exactly right, and and the new executive order also puts a provision that that now two hundred million dollar threshold will be updated automatically every three years, right. indexed to GDP, which also which is Makes you know a lot of sense. technical and wonky, but just removes this problem of like a number that may or may not have made sense <laughs> right. twenty years ago. Definitely doesn't make sense now. Yeah. And So just like let make it an automatic thing, and it is really a capacity. Management tool. To your point, like our civil service, I think is incredibly important. They're a crown jewel of our democracy, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, (laughs) And it takes, you know, it takes staff time and and attention and resources to make good policy in service of the public. You got to focus the efforts right on the most important stuff. All
0: right. Okay. So let's let's talk about. um, We're going to go through three big changes in A four. The first one is an update of discount rates. Yep. And, um, you know, discount rates are not something I think that is wi- are widely understood or widely discussed in the public. I once did a long piece on it. It was one of the first sort of super long, wonky things I ever wrote. And like d- just the wildly positive reaction sort of set me off on my, I on my, it. On my career path. <laughs> That's uh, great. So, so I have a kind of sort of fondness for discount rates, but just let's just, um, Explain briefly, if that is even humanly possible, what do we mean by a discount rate and what is, what is its significance?
1: So the basic idea is um, how do we trade off or weigh impacts that might happen today versus impacts that might happen a long time in the future? And in general, if you have a higher discount rate, you're really favoring impacts that happen right now because you're discounting impacts that might happen, you know, say, 100 years, 200 years in the future. For a lot of day-to-day stuff, that doesn't really matter all that much. But anytime you're talking about policy, the obvious big one is climate crisis policy. But anything that is going to have a longer-term, you know, multi-generational tail of impact, if you don't have the discount rate right, you're going to be systematically off. You're either going to be overweighting to the present and undercounting the future right, in terms of costs or benefits. And we talked about how long it's been since A4 is updated. A4 has written into it. A 3% discount rate that was written in in 2003. And so that's been the rate that agencies have been using for a long time. And that's not the rate now by all the best, you know, science out there.
0: The way it's, sometimes I try to explain it to people is like, what if I offered you, you know, I made you choose between I could give you a hundred dollars today or $105 in a year, totally. Or how about $106 in a year, $107? How like How much would it take for you to delay getting your money? and if you would you know if take $200 a year from now to compensate for uh, $100 now you have like a 100% discount rate or conversely if you're like oh $100 a year from now $100 now either one is exactly the same to me that's a 0% discount rate like yeah. future benefits are worth exactly as much to me as present benefits and it, and it's just a i think a good heuristic sort of indicates how much do we value future benefits so A couple of things about this. One thing I want to ask about is the 3% discount rate that's in the previous A4, the unupdated A4 was developed via a procedure and the new, you know, I, I, I saw Ricky, uh, uh, give a a presentation on this, the new discount rate, which is now 1.7% was developed basically by using the same procedure, just updated numbers. So what is that procedure? How do you come to this number?
1: It's super, super wonky. Um, there's uh, a model that OMB and you know a lot of uh, folks in the field have been using to basically try to take into account all the different complicated factors that might weigh into the kinds of policy impacts that might happen over the long run. You're trying to factor in you know, changes in human behavior, changes in market conditions, mm-hmm. all the stuff, stuff like that. So what the proposal, the new A4 proposal has actually done is two things. One is it's done a straight, just... Keeping the old formula but updating the data with the latest latest data that we have right up to you know 2022 or at least through 2021, as far as data was available and running those numbers that gets you on the same model a much lower number because it, it's got more recent data baked into it of 1.7. But the new version is also put out for peer review and public comment. And one of the questions that is being asked of you know expert reviewers is: Are there Variations to the model that should be considered. Mm. You know, now that's that's a heavier lift, right? Because then you have to construct, you know, a new model. You have to. It has to be sort of something that um, meets, you know, field wide approval in terms of peer review and all of that. But the advantage of putting both of these out is say, okay, if we take a kind of small C conservative approach and keep the old model, but just update the data, that already gets you a much more up to date number.
0: But the old formula is drawing on, it's sort of indexing on like market interest rates, right? Like m- mainly, is that is that the main sort of indicator that, that the discount rate is being derived from?
1: There are a lot of inputs. That's one of the biggest ones. And and in fact, one of the debates is basically in terms of the methodology, how much should one just sort of look to market interest rates full stop? And that's one
0: of the modeling questions. You know, we're calling it a modeling question, but really it's a philosophical, <laughs> it's a philosophical oh, totally. question. Because, yeah. because if you're looking at market rates, you're looking at sort of intra generational, like how much do individual investors care about their individual benefits in the future versus their individual benefits today. But when you're talking about something, you know, like climate change, you're talking intergenerational, sort of how much do I value benefits for my children versus costs for me, which might not be the same thing. Like like market yeah. rates might not be a good indicator of how much we value subsequent generations, right?
1: Totally. And it's also not clear, you know, how much are market rates, in fact, pricing in the real catastrophic risks of climate or, you know, other types of, you know, existential threats. And and in the new A4, there's some nice language sort of framing that the point of discounting is to really try to also take into account some of those those kind of really hard to quantify, yeah. but really catastrophic dangers that might come down the line. So it is, it is a, a broader kind of conceptual and as well as analytic question.
0: Yeah, this was sort of the point of my piece that I wrote originally, which is that these are really like moral – these are moral and philosophical oh, debates sort of being waged under cover of math uh, or under cover of of models. So I, I wonder, you know, running the same formula gets you to a 1.7 percent discount rate, but then you also put the model out for, for comment. And I wonder, is there any sort of room in the guidance if an agency decides, well – the regulations we're developing have extraordinarily long time horizons yeah, in intergenerational effects. And so we would like to use a smaller discount rate. Like, is there room for agencies to have sort of their own initiative here? So uh, there is room for that. And,
1: you know, arguably the old A4 had some room for this too, although you can imagine this was rarely took up on that offer because it's really <laughs> hard to calculate this stuff, right? Yeah. And agencies often don't have the bandwidth or, or, you know, the kind of person power to to build their own model from scratch. So that's why the default number is really important. Right. Uh, but the new version does include a discussion about, or the new proposal anyway, does include a discussion about, you know, there might be instance circumstances where the particular nature of the policy or the issue might have different dynamics. And in those cases, you know, agencies can and, and should come up with variations and probably, you know, just as a um, best practice, like run it with the 1.7 and then run it with the variation so it just you kind of can show, like ha- have some, you know, an informed decision. Right. Uh, but that's absolutely in there. And and I think a general theme, I would say, of this new A4 is creating much more informed flexibility, mm. right? That where where things don't fit, here's a good default. We've updated it. But where it doesn't fit, let's talk about how to, how to make it work because, you know, the policy goals should be front and center, and then you should build an analysis that can inform that rather than trying to shoehorn everything into a, you know, a straitjacket.
0: One other question about discount rates is you know, one of the places where discount rates come into uh, climate policy is uh, the effort to determine a social cost of carbon, yep. which is another thing uh, we've talked a lot about on this pod. And another thing that I think Biden is updating – so just maybe talk a little bit about just – even if you just change from 3% to 1.7%, how that might sort of affect how highly you price carbon.
1: Right. So it is a very big uh, direct effect. Now, the um, we can talk in a minute about sort of the mechanics around the social cost of carbon update because that's happening in a different process. But basically this point about discounting future impacts has a big implication for how we might price the economic costs, the social costs of uh, a ton of carbon pollution in the air. Basically, the higher the discount rate, the lower that social cost of carbon is going to be because many of those costs that might arise from too much carbon are long term costs, right? They're, yeah. they're going to really manifest in the future. And so for discounting that, then the, the cost can look really small. Now, this is important because in, you know, this better than me, David, but in the, you know, in the social cost universe, uh, one of the things that the Trump administration did. They put out their estimate of the social cost of carbon is extremely (laughs) low, (laughs) and part of how they got to that low number was to say, well, we're going to have a really high discount rate among other things, right? And so if you do the math, then you get this really low number. Well, okay, but if that discount rate is not rooted in reality, then of course that number is kind of meaningless.
0: And also to get back to the intergenerational thing, like you can derive some pretty absurd results from a high discount rate. Like you could – like you know, all of humanity goes extinct – in, you know, whatever, 2100 under like a, you know, seven, eight, whatever percent discount rate, we would hardly care today that that's going to happen. So you can get absurdities on both ends uh, with discount rates. Okay. So the sort of default 3% discount rate now has been lowered to a default 1.7% discount rate. And that is, you know, all things being equal going to make more regulations look cost justified. As a rule of thumb, like it's going to be easier to justify regulations that have long-term benefits under this new discount rate.
1: Yeah, and and I would say that's just you know that that it's more accurate, right? Because a lot of those <laughs> regulations, you know, have those long-term benefits. If we're talking climate, uh, you know, if you're talking lead poisoning, say, is another example, intergenerational, not quite in the climate space. Um, those benefits are there we just weren't counting them right, right. you know and and that's important, that's important to your point that uh, you know regulations people care as a policy matter as a political matter as a legal matter you know are the how do the benefits stack up against the costs that we can put numbers to
0: and i think it's intuitive too i think if you just ask the average people on the street like do you care a lot about The welfare of your (laughs) children, you know, like this. Oh, yeah. I I think this is reflective, I think, of of ordinary intuitions too. Yeah. Okay. So discount rate is the first big thing that's updated in A4. But there are a couple other uh, really big and interesting changes too. The second one I want to talk about is distribution, basically. So I think, you know, tell me that this is accurate. I think traditionally, OIRA cost benefit analysis just looked at aggregate costs and aggregate benefits without distinguishing among who what is the nature of the recipients of those costs and those benefits and that has some you know pretty straightforwardly uh, counterintuitive results so for instance if you you know one regulation would prevent a disaster in a poor neighborhood one regulation would prevent a disaster in a rich neighborhood the latter clearly has higher benefits right just cuz the property on the line is is worth more yeah and and I think it's you know intuitive to people that that there's something wrong with that, right? There's something yeah there's totally. something wrong with that. So for the first time, this new A4 tries to introduce sort of distributional impact analysis. So maybe just tell us like what would that look like? What does that mean?
1: Yeah. And this is another one of those things that, you know, I think under the old version, there there are a few sentences about, oh, you might consider distributional impact. Right. But it's not really dwelled upon and you know, and, and there are definitely uh, folks in OMB who had been pushing for this for a long time, just as pure analytic to your point. Like, you can't really say you're doing a, a real analytic treatment of a policy if you're not thinking about those types of very real impacts. Uh, you know, we all, would all say that, or I hope you would all say that, like, 100 <laughs> extra dollars for Jeff Bezos is not the same thing as 100 extra dollars for, you know, <laughs> really anyone else, but in particular, you know, working class folks, right? So the new version has a, a much more expanded in-depth discussion about distributional analysis. First, in terms of pressing agencies to to really take it seriously. Second, in terms of giving just a much more detail about how and when one might do that. So, you know, you should pay particular attention to distribution analysis to in uh, the new A4, talks about um, when you're choosing between different alternative policy designs. Suppose you have one version that might score a little better in terms of net benefits, but like it's concentrating all the costs on people who are least able to bear those costs. Right. And another version, which is still scoring, you know, net beneficial, but is a much more even distribution of those benefits and of those costs. That's a relevant fact for decision makers before they decide on what the final policy should be. So that's something that the new A4 says
0: agencies should look into. Does it provide a formula sort of telling you like how much weight does income, you know, or is it just a sort of like pay attention?
1: It does a little bit of both. Um, I think the general charge, as I read it in the new document, is saying that, you know, you should look into this um, and here, <laughs> here are some methods by which you might do that, mm. um, you know, disaggregating the impacts by you know the, the relevant constituencies, whether that's by income or like, taking a racial breakdown, or you know kind of whatever the right bucketing is. But it also gives a discussion of what's called um, income weighting, and this is provided you're know, not as a requirement, but as a like here's a tool that you could use as a way to sort of shorthand estimate. You know how much should we weigh? You know a dollar to a poor person versus a dollar to an ultra rich person. The new document has put a, an estimate of one point four as an estimate for what's called the income elasticity of marginal utility meaning how much how much more is that marginal dollar worth to you depending on you know where you are in the income level and so that's you know that's a pretty new important thing to be actually you know have that number crunched and there available sort of on the table for agencies to use as a shorthand
0: this is a little bit of an aside but it's a point that I think is worth making which is I think you know when people think about at least people in in our world when they think about federal agencies i think tend to think about like epa which has a sort of staff of dozens yep. and all these sort of phd economists on, on staff and these you know uh, armies of armies of analysts but most agencies are not that big and don't have that much administrative capacity and can't sort of sit down and develop their own <laughs> models <laughs> for these things so so it, this is not like a heavy hand of, you know, central wonks here. This is the agencies need this. They need this guidance. They can't, you know, they they want help doing these things.
1: Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And I, I think this is also a uh, not a, a flipping of the switch, right? Like having the new guidance, you also then need, to your point, kind of to have some time for the agencies to, Get used to this to build some muscle to build some capacity, and and so I think you know getting this out now with a couple of years still left in this first term, you know, to actually then have some runway for agencies to start using you know these new approaches, see what's working, see what's what's most helpful, right? I think that's the kind of work that I would anticipate Ricky and Revez and the and the and the team to be digging into, you know, going forward.
0: One other question about this: when when we're talking about distributional impacts, are we just Thinking of income, or are there other indicators right, so uh, absolutely income, but
1: also could be broken down in different ways and so if you have to look at, in the guidance itself, it actually has this whole section saying that the agency, depending on the policy, should really be thoughtful about you know what is the most informative and relevant set of breakdowns, and it might be more than one you know income, race, geography, sexual orientation you know All there are right, a bunch right. of different ways that one might break it down you obviously can't do every category for every policy because that would be <laughs> right, that would multiply right. really fast but i think that point of the of the guidance is to say think about what are the constituencies and communities who are most likely to be impacted differently by the policy and then devise an approach ideally quantitative but if not you know even using qualitative assessment of what you have what you can to think about rigorously right how are those different communities being impacted and then having that inform the policy choice. Because at the end of the day, it's not its not a make work exercise, right? Like this, the point of this is are we making good policy that serves the public and that is attuned to the very real disparities that we have in our country, right? That's the issue. Right. So this gives a framework to do that. Uh, but it's really going to then be up to the agencies working with OMB and the OIRA folks to, to make it real.
0: Kind of already asked this once, but I want to return to it. So if I'm an agency reading this, do I read this as, I have to convince OIRA that I thought about this, <laughs> or is this, you know, a gentle suggestion from OIRA that I can take or, or not take? Like, is this now going to be a sort of a requirement for new regs?
1: It's a great question in part because, you know, I think um, different OIRAs have different styles depending on the administration, right? When I was there, we we very much uh, – you know, saw so ourselves as, you know, working hand in glove, you know, in partnership with the agencies to, to make good policy, right? But that said, you know, OMB's role is also to sort of kick the tires on whether it's the budget or the regs. And so I do think it's not a, you must do this, but it is a very, very strong suggestion about, <laughs> about the kinds of things that one should look into. And and look, like even now under the old A4, it's not like every regulation does every single thing that A four talks about? Because that's right. that's there's so much in there. So in that sense, you know, there's there's lots of tailoring, lots of flexibility on what's needed. But it is very much a like this is the bar, this is what we're going to be looking for, and you know, when OMB uh, comes asking for stuff, the agencies know that they got to pay attention to that.
0: Okay, so um, first updated discount rate, second. The strong suggestion (laughs) that agencies do some distributional impact analysis. And the third thing, which is also quite interesting, I think, for insiders, because this has been a point of contention for a long time, is the suggestion that agencies take the international impacts of regulations into effect. And it was, you know, we mentioned earlier the Trump administration's sort of ludicrously low uh, social cost of carbon, part of how they came to that ludicrously low number is very explicitly, ostentatiously even, yeah. <laughs> saying we don't give a damn about how our regulations <laughs> impact other countries that we just don't care. Like we're uh, the only numbers that are feeding into our, our our calculations are how does this benefit or cost Americans? And, and this, you know, I, I think just as sort of ostentatiously says, no, that's real dumb and also morally horrific. So what What exactly does A4 say about international impacts? Is it is it similar to distributional in that this is a strong suggestion?
1: I think of it as opening up the, the aperture to allow for st- stuff that had been squeezed out before, right? So mm-hmm. not every rule is going to have you know, massive global implications – but many of them will, and those ought to be taken into account and so you know I read this section uh, this is for for those following along at home, the geographic <laughs> scope of analysis um, uh, you know there's there's a lot of great language in there about the different ways in which global effects might come into play, so it might be that you know there are non u s citizens who are living abroad and you know face certain impacts that you know, might have parallels in the U.S., so they're good proxies. Um, There might be experiencing an externality of U.S. decisions. You know, climate comes to mind there as well. Uh, So there are a lot of different kinds of of variations laid out in the guidance. The point is that, and the guidance says that, you know, you should think about the global effects and, you know, incorporate them into your analysis. It even talks about how, you know, if if it makes more sense, include that as a separate thing, right? That, you know, you have your traditional analysis, but then you could also sort of provide a, a separate analysis of the impacts abroad, if, if that's the more sort of feasible way to get at it. But you, you know, you really should be thinking about it.
0: And is this similar in that you've provided a formula that agencies can use or not use? And if there is a formula, I'm wondering, sort of like, how much less do we value a foreign life? Relative to an American life, like, is there is there a number there on, on how much discounting we're doing geographically? Right. So
1: not in A4. Uh, the discussion in A4 is, is is more qualitative uh, in terms of just sort of guidance to the agencies. Right. And, you know, I think like with other – like with distributional analysis and discount rates, you know, there'll be rules where there will be trade-offs that have to be weighed. Um, I think compared to right now where we don't have consistent analysis of what those trade-offs might even be – it's hard to even make good judgments about, about those. Right. right? And so I think the idea here is let's take that on, do the analysis, do the work and, and then, you know, make, there are all sorts of reasons why a policy might come down one way or another. You know, it's hard for A4 to be prescriptive in that way, but A4 can say, you know, you need to
0: take these issues seriously. Right. At least think about it. Yeah. So those are the three big things. And, you know, um, like I said earlier, Roughly those same issues are, are reflected in A94 when they're talking about public investment. I think maybe one thing worth picking out on A94 and talking about it specifically is – and this was a little bit of a mind-blower to me – A94 as it exists has a 7% discount rate for investments in public infrastructure, which just like seems to me crazy because like public investments in particular – are designed for long term benefit, like that's the whole point. Like infrastructure investments and stuff like that are, you know, like we have a whole history in our country of like huge investments we made that paid off handsomely over the long term, but wouldn't have penciled out under a a seven percent right. discount rate. So where the heck did that seven percent discount rate come from in our public investment considerations? And how does a ninety four change that?
1: Big difference between A4 and A94 is that A94 is focused exactly on, as you said, David, just the kind of government's expenditure on public investments, and and so it's always been sort of related to A4, but a little bit different. The seven percent number in A94, you know, was aligned with A4 in there originally, and that A4, you know, had a three percent number, and then also had as an as an upper bound for those types of capital investment related rules had had that seven percent in there. Uh, But it's, you know, that also is really in sore need of updating. uh, And so that's what A94 does. I think uh, what you'll see in the new version, um, without getting too deep into the weeds, is that uh, the new version is more aligned with the new version of A4. The numbers are a little bit different to sort of take into consideration the particularities of like what, say, you know, the budget side uh, of OMB has to take into account when they're dealing with, you know, federal investments in buildings and and stuff like that. Right. It's a little bit different from from regulation. So that that's where the divergence comes from. But that old seven percent number, I think, is reflective of where we were with the thinking on this stuff, you know, in the early two (laughs) thousands.
0: And is and is it is there a new number? For discount rates for public investments, or is it not that simple on this side?
1: Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit more complicated for the investment side, um, but that's also going for the same kind of peer review and, and public comment. Uh, so I think we'll know more in in the coming months about where where A ninety four lands exactly. But what's exciting and important is that this, you know, that A ninety four the last revision was in I think nineteen ninety two. <laughs> um, so, so still quite, you know, uh, not quite as old as A4, but still pretty old.
0: Yeah, that's wild. And you know, A94 also gets into you know distributional stuff and and international yep. stuff. A lot of the really of the important, same. yeah,
1: really important ec- distributional and uh, and global effect uh, language in there.
0: And part of this, I mean, I think part of the point of all this, uh, one of the points of all this was to align A4 and A94 better, so we have some sort of yes. coherent. You know, they had kind of drifted apart in a way that made no sense.
1: Totally. And, you know, full props to um, the OMB chief economist uh, team, who they they sort of are the keepers of A94 in this sort of OMB ecology. They I know they've been working really hard on all this.
0: So those are the three big changes. Are there other changes in A4 that you think are worth calling out? Like there's something having to do with risk and risk tolerance and risk assessment I that I don't even know how to... Create a coherent question about, but feel <laughs> totally. free to talk, feel free to talk about it. Totally,
1: yeah. No, I appreciate that. Um, I, I think there are three other uh, buckets of things that I'll just highlight briefly because um, they're important, and and also I think uh, really brings this up to 2023. So one is what you were just alluding to. There are a bunch of things that are more, that will mean a lot more to, you know, our economist and and economic modeler friends who might be listening, (laughs) but they really amount to kind of bringing A4 into line with sort of cutting edge of economic theory. So how Mm -hmm. do we take into account uncertainty and uncertain effects that, you know, we don't know with perfect certainty at these estimates, right? Let's factor that in, taking into account risk and risk aversion, right? People are willing to pay more to be protected from the risk that something might go haywire. It's kind of typical, understandable human behavior, but that's not always baked into the models. So there's like, there's some some technical stuff that's, you know, bucket one. The second bucket is there's a lot of really interesting, what I think of as like macroeconomic structure things that are baked into this new version. So normally reg reviews, reg analysis would be, you know, you're looking at The new regulation, almost at a micro level, like you're just Mm -hmm. looking at that regulation and you're kind of holding the rest of the world kind of constant. But the new A4, it talks about, for example, business cycles. There might be regulations that have different you know, benefits and costs when we're in a recession versus when mm. we're not. And If you think about, you know, for example, um, social insurance policies, if they're designed to be counter-cyclical, those benefits really only kick in under certain conditions right. that may not be around when the r- regulation's being written, right? right? So it incorporates that. It incorporates a lot of great new thinking about uh, market concentration and competition. That's been a big focus of this administration, right? Being attuned to the ways in which concentrated ownership of industries can lead to higher prices, you know, less stable production, you know, kind of the all the, the the antitrust, anti-monopoly stuff that is happening. So there's that's baked into A4 much more. So these kind of like big macroeconomic Conditions,
0: Macroeconomic context, which which you would think is like, duh, "Duh," of course, of course.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then the last bucket is also another like, you know, you think, of course, it's not rocket science, but it's a really important shift is that the new A4 has a lot more language and guidance about what to do with those impacts that you can't put numbers to. Because they're obviously real and there. And it even talks specifically about things like civil rights and civil liberties, democracy, equity. These are goals for good public policy. They may not have number values, and and in some cases, ought not to have number values.
0: Or the welfare of uh, other species, if I can just speak absolutely. Up here there's for a some. section.
1: Yeah, there's a section there about ecosystems and and ecological impacts as part of the hard to quantify discussion. So there's you know there's tons of really important implications of that that you could imagine for you know everything from ecology to equity that I think this new A4 is much much better at.
0: And those I think are really sticky to deal with because there's no formula, I mean even a candidate formula, right? There's just no yeah. way to come up with a formula for how like, you know, how much should uh, you know, EPA weigh uh beauty or or whatever or, yeah. or whatever. But as you say, those things exist and matter. So is this just Basically, OIRA is saying to agencies, take note of, think about these things, like take these things into consideration. Is that all there is to it? I think it's two things. One is that uh, take into consideration
1: and bring those considerations into your analysis, because a lot of times mm. agencies are thinking about that stuff, but they've struggled in the past at times to bring those very real considerations into an impact analysis, given how narrow the old A4 used to be. Right. And so then you had this kind of weird, right? Like we know that part of what we're trying to do is, you know, protect ecosystems or protect the, the dignity of disabled persons who, you know, a curb cutout is expensive to have on every sidewalk, but absolutely critical to just like that basic human dignity. If you're a disabled person of a particular kind, you know, so like, let's take that obvious real factors that are in any human decision about this kind of stuff. And let's actually give it a proper pride of place in the analysis. And then it's up to the agency to sort of make the all things considered best decision. And that's something that would be worked out through the review process with, you know, DOT might come to a particular view about, you know, what the rules should be for laboratory access for disabled persons on an airline. That's going to have costs. It's going to have qualitative considerations about basic civil liberties, human human life and safety and dignity. And then if we can get everyone on the same page through the review process that this makes sense, this is good, then that should be the way we go.
0: Right. So this is OIR saying we're going to give you wide latitude to think about these things and incorporate these things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, a lot of times I think people who are, you know, more attuned to the hard sciences might feel like this stuff can be, you know, squishy and amorphous. I always found it very straightforward. It's you know, give us your reasons. Like any good right. know, like any good piece of writing. Give your reasons, give your evidence, and just because it's qualitative doesn't mean you don't have reasons and you don't have evidence. So, talk about it.
0: And even if you think it's arbitrary to pick a particular number, it's quite clear that the number is not zero, right? Like right. The, de- right. the default has been zero, which is clearly, you know, against uh, our common values. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so that's a lot of changes, uh, a lot of changes to pack in this <laughs> technical circular. One uh, other thing, I, I saw at one point the term cost-effectiveness analysis. Is there some effort to replace the whole sort of, notion of cost benefit analysis with something else? Like what, how do those, what's the deal there?
1: Yeah. So, so this I would put in the theme of much more flexibilities, right? To get the right kind of analysis for the right, for the policy at hand. So I think people are familiar with traditional benefit cost, cost benefit analysis where you kind of monetize everything on both sides of the ledger and then you Mm -hmm. sum it up and then, and then you're done. But especially when you're talking about things that might not be quantified quite as well, right? There are, other variations that A4, uh, the new A4 talks through in more detail. So cost-effectiveness is one. Suppose you have a a kind of easy-to-understand qualitative goal, you know, um, that may not have an exact number that you can measure, Mm -hmm. you know, but you can measure the costs, right? So, like, um, we want to increase safety in the workplace. We We can proxy that in different ways, but the proxies are all kind of, you know, imperfect. And we know how much it would cost to, like, increase the, the safety requirements or, you know, slow down production so that people aren't hurting themselves in a, in a horrible way, right? So then you can sort of do a cost-effectiveness comparison of, you know, how much boost to your goal are you getting for, you know, for some higher cost? And then the policymaker can say, yeah, that's justified because that goal is really important. And we've done some work to know what the costs are, and we think this is the, the overall more cost-effective way to get to that goal compared to some other variation,
0: Right. This is something that that, um, debates over cost-benefit analysis have been batting back and forth for a long time, which is the sort of premise of cost-benefit analysis is you let the cost-benefit analysis tell you what your goal is, whereas cost-effectiveness is here's the goal. Yeah. Now let's work backwards what is the most cost-effective way to reach that goal, which is a very different way of approaching
1: yeah, absolutely. And, and I think if, if I could pin down sort of the ethos of this overall A4, I think you just put it really, really nicely, David. It's that, you know, the analysis should be informing the policy, not the other way around. Um, <laughs> right. right. And so there's, there's uh, another variation on this that's called break-even analysis. It's also mm. talked about in the new A4. It's a similar kind of idea that let's say, we can't actually put a hard number to the benefits. We we can't monetize it for whatever reason. But can we figure out sort of like, what's the threshold that if we think the benefits are above that number, then we know we more than break even. So even if we can't put a hard number to the benefits, we know with good certainty that the benefits are above this level of what the cost might be. And so these are all imperfect, right? I right. think for folks who are, are uh, wary of, Quantified and monetized cost-benefit analysis. You know, I, I think these will not get you all the way there. F- you know, f- from that critique. But what it does do is give you a lot more options to say, let's stop shoehorning good policy judgment into an <laughs> old straightjacket process.
0: Right. Another of the Biden administration's big priorities, big pushes, is to bring the public more fully into these deliberations. Yep. And I just wonder, I have a couple of questions about that. I wonder One is just, what does A4 say about that? Like, w- w- In what way do you recommend that agencies do this? I'm really glad you asked this because this is also something I
1: feel super strongly about, and I think they've done some good work on this. So uh, alongside A4, the president also issued, when the new A4 came out, an executive order, which included uh, some new requirements around public participation. So one, it's a much stronger emphasis for the agencies to do more proactive early engagements with impacted constituencies as mm. they're designing their rules. So by the time a rule comes into our review, a lot of it is, I don't want to say cooked already, but a lot of work has already been done. And a lot of times it's much more impactful and meaningful to have robust public participation earlier in the process, especially if you're talking about underserved constituencies or impacted groups, right? Those are the voices that you need to hear early on. So there's a a general charge under this administration in a number of different executive orders actually to press agencies to do more of that proactive early engagement. Then there's a switch to the OIR review process itself to open up that process to more participation as well. So mm. right now, an interested party could request a meeting with OIRA when they're reviewing a, a rule to give their views. It's kind of a wonky thing. Not you know, not that many people know about it. It's uh,
0: how, how is that different from public comment?
1: It's very similar to public comment, but it basically takes place during the OIR review process before the rule goes out for public comment. And uh. and the, the rationale is you know there might be. Nuances or, or details that you know if you're from an impacted community, you might know you know have some additional information right that might be worth you know making sure is is emphasized or or shared as an input. Those are not backs and forths right they they're basically listening sessions, but the new executive order continues that practice and and charges a wire with making that much more accommodating and inclusive, especially to historically marginalized communities, communities whose voices may not, you know, may not have sort of K Street uh, lobbyists, right, Right, being easy for them to go. And then the the last thing that it does, it also puts a lot more meat on this process that's called petitions. So uh, communities, civil society groups, individuals can petition agencies to push them to take action on an issue that maybe the agency hasn't thought about before or hasn't been as proactive on. Those petitions then kind of sit there. The new, the new process um, creates some more coordination so that when someone brings a petition, OIRA is also aware of that. OIRA can then also sort of like check with the agency and like, hey, this petition, you know, what's the response to this petition? You know, how are we responding to the, the, the needs that folks are, are bringing to you? So these are a lot of like little pieces here and there, but the sum total of it is to try to improve that participatory and inclusive aspect of the rulemaking process.
0: Well, one other question about that, which is I'm sure you're aware of the sort of larger conversation going on around liberalism these days, which is that it's become slow (laughs) and that NIMBY's are stopping everything and it's hard to build anything and it's hard to move quickly and we've and basically sort of we become sclerotic. And you know, and sometimes that critique takes the form of saying basically like the public has too many uh, ways of inserting itself and and exercising a veto here, and we need to streamline things and do things faster. And this seems intuitively, on the surface at least, to tack against that. So how do you think about the kind of need for moving expeditiously relative to the need for public participation?
1: Right, right. It's such an important question. I'm, I'm glad you asked it. I think there are two things to to bear in mind. I, one is just on these proposals here; these are all very much sort of inputs. They're they're not these are not decisional or veto types of discussions, right? So I think you know things still still move along, and 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 the overall time frame of the regulation, you know, OIRA has a clock under the old executive order which has stayed in place for how long it can, you know, it ought to be taking on on rules. And Although,
0: so, it, can we just say it, like it it has frequently <laughs> exceeded that alleged clock? Uh, you know, I, I remember all the complaining about OIRA that used to go on when Cass Sunstein was uh, was in charge under Obama. Like OIRA was frequently charged with slow walking these regulations.
1: I was I wasn't there during that time, but um, but one of the things that I'll say is uh, when there's a delay, usually it's because there's some like there's actually a dispute, right, as, mm. as opposed to someone's just kind of holding it up. Um. But you know, one thing I'm really proud of with this administration and, and this OIRA is that you know, if you take ARP for example, we set in OMB uh, a two week cap, a two week ceiling on any. Uh, this is the American Recovery Plan at the height of the economic free fall, right in spring 2021. All that money, you know, had to get out the door because yeah. the economy was co- was in such grave danger. People were hurting, right, during COVID. So we set and we kept to a two week turnaround every single piece huh. of uh, ARP policy came through a Wira, went through a wire review and was done in two weeks or less. Cause we had to, right. right. And, and I say that to say, you know, um, where there's like will and, and focus and dedication, the process moves. And, you know, one thing the things I, I really like about uh, this administration's approach is that it, it has tried to balance, you know, just, we got to get stuff done with, we got to also, you know, kind of have evidence and do things robustly. So, so to come back to participation then, I think that the critiques are are important and and well-founded, but to my mind, it's not a choice between participation or effectiveness. It's a question about what kind of participation to make the policies effective. So, Mm. you know, you're not, A, you're not going to have good policy if you don't hear from the people you need to hear from, but B, there's a way to hear from them in a way that is efficient, right? This is why that upstream early engagement is so valuable because you get everyone, you know, together. You get all the inputs you need, and then you design the policy right the first time around, and then you you don't have to have you know 50,000 you know kind of nipping at your heels types of conversations <laughs> downstream. You know, people are going to disagree. That's fine. You can litigate disagreements. You know at the next election or, or in the next, with the next regulation or whatever, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be hearing from people.
0: Yeah. And there is a value just to being heard. I mean, I, yes, I, I think a absolutely. lot of, a lot of people, you know, they might not say this explicitly, but I think a lot of these groups will feel like there's progress being made just if they are convinced that they are genuinely having a voice in this
1: and that's something i saw a lot of you know in the time i was in government too that it is really important you know the government serves the people and it's hard to convince people you're serving them if you're not actually you know <laughs> hearing from them or seeing them right and that doesn't mean that you have to do everything that everyone says because that's you know we have a big country but <laughs> but i do think that's an important piece of this
0: what's the process now so this is this is a4 and a94 have been put out for both public comment and peer review, which are separate processes. so what happens next like what's, right. what's the road?
1: So over the next um, there's over the next maybe a uh, couple weeks there's still some time left in the in the public comment period. so mm-hmm. uh, if you have listeners who you know might have views <laughs> about either of these documents after listening to this, um, you know they should absolutely weigh in, particularly if they have you know expertise on some of these issues. So there's uh, public comment is ongoing uh, that will
0: close in a couple weeks. And can I pause yeah. there on, on public comment? I'm just uh, curious if you have any sense or guesses about how public comment is going to unfold. Like I, my, my gut instinct is like because most of these changes will have the effect of making it easier to pass big regulations, <laughs> right? Like in, in the public interest, that industry is just going to. Knee jerk, be against them and and rail against them in public comment. Like, is that uh, is that sort of how you expect public comment to shape up? This sort of like public interest groups versus industry yet again, or is there more nuance to it?
1: Uh, I mean, I, I hope it, it ends up being more <laughs> more more nuance than that because because um, there's a lot here. Obviously, uh, I mean, I think that's anytime you're talking about regulation, you know, we live in the world. We have to be attuned to that that dynamic. But I, you know, I think my hope would be that there are enough. There's enough here that is, you know, evidence based, empirically rigorous, and and just like obvious updates, right? Like what right. we were talking about on discount rate and on, you know, on distributional analysis and so on. That I hope we'll get a, a range of of comments. It'll be particularly important too to sort of get comments from, uh, from the field, as you were saying, you know, from economists, but also anthropologists and sociologists yeah. and people who are working it in community on the grassroots level about what kind of distributional analysis will actually help, you know, make sure their voices are counted, right? Like I think we want to to cast it open. So it's not just the same, you know, conventional wonks as as, as much as we do want to hear from them too. Industry lawyers. <laughs> right. I think <laughs> I think a bigger set would be lovely because, you know, this is this is some of the source code of a executive branch that, that can honest to God serve the public interest and serve all of us. I really believe that. So I hope we hear from more people. So first there's comments. Uh, once that comment period wraps wraps up, the peer review should be happening. I'm not sure exactly when, but I assume they'll be doing it in parallel to that because peer review can take a long
0: time. And is this peer review just like The same that academics are familiar with.
1: Yeah, it's meant to be exactly. It's it's meant to be a similar similar process. So the government actually has a pretty standard Mm -hmm. uh, peer review process for technical documents that this uh, this review I I assume will be following, uh, and that's modeled on you know sort of scientific academic peer review uh, procedures. So that will go for a couple months as well, and then these documents should be finalized. the timeline they gave was over, uh, was no longer than a year. So, um, mm. so, you know, basically by, you know, play it forward a, a few more months, maybe it's a little sooner, maybe it's a, a little later, but I, I think it's going to move pretty quickly, especially once the, the common period closes just because, you know, this is way overdue and, and <laughs> uh, and it is important.
0: And you think these will be finalized in time to actually inform the, the writing of substantial regulations from the Biden administration?
1: I hope so. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I think that certainly is is the goal with you know this charge coming out on day one, and then now this uh, the full proposal out you know here and uh, at the start of of year three. So I really hope that's the case.
0: And once they're in place, I mean, I guess I'm wondering how resilient they are. Like if you know, there's a DeSantis administration uh, in 2024. Is there anything stopping them from just? Uh, ripping these up and going back to 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 something older. I mean, is, do these have any resilience against political uh uh a, a chicanery or are they just, you know, an administration can do what it wants? That's a tricky
1: question in a in a world where um when you look at what's happening in, in places you know like like Florida and elsewhere. I, I think what I I'd say two things about that. One is that it's really it, it is meant to have staying power and part of the point of making sure this document Goes through peer review and goes through public comment and goes through all the things that a long-lasting, non-political, technical document ought to go through. Mm-hmm. You know, this is that kind of enterprise, and so the old A4 lasted for for twenty years, and this this new version is you know very much an update to that. It's not junking the old enterprise at all, and so I think that the hope would be that that would continue. Now, that said, you know, when you have uh, people on the right continuing to organize around things like schedule F, you know the Trump administration's plan to junk most civil service protections oh, for example like there's a lot of stuff that is brewing on the right <laughs> just to say that that is really aimed at at destroying a well functioning evidence based and transparent bureaucracy and i think we just that, but that's a broader question that's not an a4 question right that's right. a broader question for all of us to say that okay yes we're having a debate about about policy and about all sorts of kind of horrifying other things that are happening too on the far right. But at some point, we got to say, like, if, we, if we're going to have a government <laughs> that serves the public, understanding that the public doesn't always agree on a lot of policies, we can do that, right? We can do that with evidence and with transparency and with good procedures that allow for participation and evolution of ideas like there's a way we can do that government you know we it's possible to have a government in this country that is effective and that deals with our complexity and our diversity but not if you have bad actors who come in with a desire to bring a wrecking ball
0: right if they want to if they want to nuke the administrative state a4 is not gonna stop them
1: right and (laughs) and i think it's sort of for all of us who care about these issues you know I think it's important for us to care about wonky stuff like A4, but I also think it's important for us to care about those kinds of existential threats to the project of shared collective government in the first place.
0: Yes. Uh, All right. Well, that seems like a great place to... Wrap up, Sabeel Rahman, this has been so, so helpful, so uh, clarifying. And this is, you know, I, I love getting into the, the, the wonky guts of stuff because it's so, uh, you know, this, as you say, it's a source code. It's going to affect everything that comes out of the government after this. So it's really great to get a clear view of it. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, David, for having me. This is great. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.